But this idea that great men are irreplaceable and that as the commons, we cannot, you know, we cannot do this ourselves. We have to go to these intermediaries. This is the most unfree and enslaved thinking that, that is out there, right? There is not authoritarianism because people are cowering before some great, you know, dictator who just wants to rule the world. It happens because these, because the commons are thinking so poorly of themselves that they think that they need these intermediaries. Welcome to the Tucson Bitcoin Podcast. Today, my guest is Austin Jones, and I'm stoked about this conversation. So Austin is on the front lines of this battle for freedom and liberty, and he's doing some really meaningful work in the arena of firearms uh, with developing different types of ammunition and you know, just revolutionizing uh, the way that firearms are going to work in the future uh, with things like uh, armor penetrating ammunition that you could potentially make at home. He's open sourcing it. Uh, they're working on just a, a litany of different projects over there that I'm really excited to see uh, come out in the next uh, couple years or year. And it's really he's got a really interesting perspective on this stuff. Um, I met him about a year ago at a Bitcoin conference and it's been great to have him on the podcast. Uh, but yeah, we talked about a wide range of subjects in this conversation. Uh, you know, it's kind of summarizing it. We talk a lot about why the individual is important and why liberty is important and how do we achieve that in our lives. And yeah, I think it's a pretty meaningful conversation. So I hope you enjoy it. Awesome. Stoked to have you on, Austin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've wanted you on uh, for a while. It was really good meeting you at the Bear Arms and Bitcoin conference last year and uh, really excited about what Atlas Arms is doing. I appreciate it. Yeah. So so what was kind of, what's the vision of Atlas Arms and why was it created? Um, we have like a, on our website a long time ago, I wrote up like three mission statements. It's like, you know, provide alternatives to the restricted, uh, kind of commercial sale of munitions that exists now. Um, uh, what, 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 what is that offer? Yeah. Cheap, cheap, safe, cheap and reliable alternatives or something like that. Um, proliferate arms, uh, to like across the industrialized world, something like that anyway, and then capitalize on the technical superiority of the technology that we develop um, to, to further you know, push it out into the world. Um, but really, I mean, it, it comes down to like, uh, you know, there, I mean, I'm, I'm an engineer, I like to build things. Uh, and, you know, it, it kind of starts with me, of course. Um, but, uh, as I, as I say in like one video, like I don't care much for federal firearms regulation. And uh, uh, so Aldous Arms is something of like um, a gun company that tries to do, and especially for the political ends of, of uh, like firearms freedoms um, or the right to bear arms, what other gun companies won't do, uh, something, something like that. Um, so yeah, I guess that's kind of the, the, the 
the briefest, if not so brief way that I could say it. Yeah, it, it's a mission I really, you know, appreciate quite a bit. And one thing that was surprising and astonishing to me was how did kind of traditional gun lobby with the NRA and, you know, other gun companies really just don't care about gun rights for the individuals. Right. That's true. They, uh, they exist as a, as a corporate lobby for the traditional gun industry. So, you know, like they don't, they don't care what kinds of weapons you're allowed to have as long as you keep buying some weapons. It's a money game for them, not a game of liberty or, or rights or, or, or freedom or any of that. Yeah, have you followed the story of that company, that trigger company in Florida, that the rare breed? Yeah, um, hats off to them. I mean, uh, I feel like a brotherhood with them, just frankly, uh, for for their efforts. Um, I don't know that's gonna go for them. Uh, they were denied, I guess, like the um, uh, what do what do you call it, a preliminary injunction. Um, but we'll, we will hope that they succeed. I mean, this is kind of also in line, of course, with all the the bump stock ban litigation that, that's going on. Um, but man, their refusal to back down is, is uh, man, we need more of that. Um, and oftentimes I feel like Atlas Arms is kind of standing alone in our blatant opposition, but it's really good to see like other friends like them stand up in the industry. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of companies out there that, uh, and I've I've met these companies in Tucson of various forms, whether it's gyms or bars or, you know, other groups outside of the firearms industry that have been pushing back and and non-compliant. But it it is difficult because there's like two aspects of it. If you get media attention, the mob goes after you. Uh, it puts you in a kind of exposed position. And then, uh, two, I think there's like the attitude of like, we need to avoid giving these, you know, businesses or, or groups, uh, any attention, because if we see a lot of non-compliant, if normal people see a lot of non-compliance, it kind of breaks down the legitimacy of the state in general. So, yeah. Um, I think so. I, um, You know, I guess like Arizona, or at least the, 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 the culture, especially in uh, Phoenix or Tucson, not so much in the north where I am, unfortunately, but there is a, a lot of that, like, you know, American wild, wild west freedom uh, still kicking. And, uh, you know, there is a lot more pushback than you see in places like New York or California or, or whatever. Um, and yeah, that, and that's, that's it. That's an ultimately what wins the day. And if one man stands up by himself, they can knock him out. But if everybody stands up, ain't nothing they can do about it. And I mean, that's that's the way it goes. And I think that like that's that's kind of the conversation du jour these days is like stop it, stop complying. And I'm really happy to see it go that way. Not just you know in regards to like you know all of this you know COVID despotism or whatever, but in terms of like the gun industry also like do not like i will not comply gun politics is actually like you know that, that's pretty radical and it's pretty new um and we didn't see that kind of thing when the nra was running the show the only game in town back in like the 80s and 90s um and it's good to see that it's effective it's much much more effective than you know political tiltings yeah i agree 
Yeah, there's been this interesting movement uh, happening where the state of Texas, a bunch of LARPers just recently passed a constitutional carry for the first time. And then there's been a bunch of states, including Arizona, that have said that they're not going to enforce federal firearms legislation. And it's weird, like, the government's acting, the federal government's acting insane, but the local states are... I don't know. It's like a giant pendulum swing in a different direction, which I think is interesting and good. Yeah. Um, so like this is, this matters a lot to us because like we're starting our, our commercial uh, production operation in Texas, but we have to move it to back to my home state of Oklahoma because the, our ammunition is actually illegal in Texas, or at least the premium version, like the, the actual Dagny dagger. The cheaper version isn't because uh, it's not intended for armor penetration, but um, we have to move back to Oklahoma. And as we're doing this, you know, we're looking at these like state laws like Texas, you know, recently kind of like uh, took it on themselves to like preempt or post them to wh- whichever the way it goes, I guess. Uh, the federal, you know, like restrictions on on suppressors and they're saying like if it's made in Texas, we're, we don't care. We're not going to force it. Suppressors are legal in Texas as long as they're made in Texas, because, you know, they try to use the interstate, uh, interstate commerce clause, right. To get a, to get around all, all this stuff. Um, or the federal government does to, to, to regulate uh, all, all these different areas. Um, and it's funny, like Texas is taking a stand on that, but we still got to move away because our ammunition is illegal there. So we got to go to, to Oklahoma. And of course, like all these states, you know, they've got some some level of like, uh, you know, Second Amendment sanctuary, whatever legislation on the books. But what does it mean? So, like, I just wish, like, it, it's nice to say that, but none of these, Oklahoma's is probably the best in this regard, but it's still lacking. They don't have teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like, we're not going to force it. Okay, so the, they'll just send in the ATF. Like the ATF is what it enforces these laws anyway. So why does it matter if you don't? They're still gonna break my door down and shoot my dog and and you know, you know like so what what is like we need to see these states that actually care. We need to see them have teeth. Like, look, not only are like it is illegal to do this, and we will send our own police to arrest those ATF agents, we need to see some like real language here. I guess like they're, that they're standing up, that they're saying something is like the first step, but I guess like a theme that runs deep in what Atlas Arms does is talking about it ain't enough. Uh, you gotta do uh, to make it matter. Um, so yeah, right now we're in, a, we're, we're in the talk stage and, and hopefully hopefully they'll work up enough courage by talking about it to, to do something, so. Yeah. Yeah, I was telling Suckboy that he needs to get a bulletproof vest for his, uh... Uh, roommate's dog just in case yeah right those uh those are some aggressive dogs too I'll say. <laughs> they, they will run at you they'll jump on you when you first, i mean they're not gonna bite you but like yeah they'll be the first dogs to get shot that's for sure <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i think what i find interesting is the parallels between bitcoin and the um homemade or 3d printed gun community in general, as far as like this idea underlying that technology protects rights rather than government. Um, yeah. And I think that's- and In fact, I, I guess like the way that we would traditionally think of it in America is that that the rights protect the, the uh, technology and it ends up being just the other way around. That's, that's a good point. 
Yeah. Yeah, I find it I find it pretty fascinating. I think it's important in a in the day and age like this where, you know, the governments are practicing things like just blatantly confiscating people's property and money out of their bank accounts if the, somebody pulls a political move that they don't like. Um but yeah, it's I find I find like this like I I think gun ownership's important because it empowers the individual. It allows them to protect their property, um, protect themselves, uh, protect their livelihood. Um, I think Bitcoin is important in that regard too. Um, and so it excites me the stuff that you're doing and the philosophy of of Atlas Arms for sure. Um, but yeah, for it's sure. hard. As far as like pushback that you've experienced, what what have been some of the obstacles thus far? You, you know, there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of significant pushback or like institutional pushback. Um, a lot of this is because like you know, kind of the gun control crowd thought that they had dealt with armor piercing ammunition back in the '80s, right? So like it has not, you know, like in American gun politics now they're concerned about what constitutes a machine gun and um, and like universal background checks and what is an assault weapon and all of that kind of stuff. So like the, com- the conversation um, has largely left armor piercing ammunition. And I think it's just like, as these political movements just are like spawned from popular culture. I mean, like literally the freak out over APMO back in the eighties that led to it being banned was because of a movie. Like it was because like it was in Lethal Weapon 3 or I can't remember which one it was, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's a pop culture thing. Like these political movements are so insincere that they don't really understand or know about anything that's not in the popular conversation. So uh, we've been kind of flying under the radar because I don't think like the gun control crowd knows to care or really understands what this is about and that it would like entirely upend um, uh, like a, a, a an entire issue of federal gun control. Um, maybe they just don't think it's an issue anymore. I, I don't know. But uh, but yeah, we, we haven't received a lot from that. Um, kind of like the 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 most ridiculous thing is like the biggest pushback we received is from the traditional gun community um they are they are a ridiculous bunch um conservative as they are and just like imminently suspicious of anything that hasn't always existed or they didn't grow up with um you know conservatism like as a mentality not like a politics but like just you know conservatism as opposed to like i don't know a liberal worldview uh, one that that um, is very traditional, doesn't like change, uh, and that's been that's been most of it, you know, um, I guess. And then you know there 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 are there is like the I wouldn't say it's like concerted pushback, but there is there is some like ideological resistance or opposition coming from like a, a law enforcement point of view, a bunch of cops like commenting on articles about the Dagny Dagger, like on, on like, you know, Ammo Land and other gun blogs, so like, oh my gosh, this makes my, why would you do this? It makes my job so dangerous or whatever, you know, like that kind of silly thing. But uh, luckily that's kind of been all that, that we faced so far. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I think the good news is on the rate we're going, there's not gonna be any cops to complain here pretty soon. 
<laughs> yeah, right. Uh, they're going to quit or be fired, I suppose. Um, which, you know, like this, this is like completely separate from the gun is- issue for me and everything that Atlas Arms does. Um, you know, but like, yeah, I, I think the police in this country, of, of course, like they've become monsters and they're, they're out of control and, and everything. And I'm kind of happy to see their ranks diminish. But at the same time, it is like kind of like a scary flip coin because the institution isn't going to let it go. And as police are, you know, trigger happy and, you know, <laughs> limited in intelligence and abilities and, and, uh, and willing to hurt people as they are, they're going to start getting desperate to fill the ranks with police. They do exactly what they're told uh, and they will become even, even more amoral, uh, even more psychopathic, even more trigger happy. Um, and that's one thing I'm a little bit afraid of. So I guess like, you know, when you get scared of stuff like this, no matter how the world goes, I guess like all we can do, what, what do we do? I mean, I just sit here and, and make ammunition for what happens next. What happens next? I don't know. But uh, yeah, I'm still, I guess like from my perspective, the jury's still out on if it's a good thing that, you know, police are, are starting to, to call the bet or not. I don't know. I'm worried about what they're going to be replaced with. Yeah. One thing that I think is incredibly important right now is living rural and avoiding the big cities as much as possible for that reason, because I think it's a lot harder to enforce things when people are spread out a little bit more versus piled up on each other. Yeah, I think that's generally true. Um, The big cities do kind of, I mean, obviously they're, they're the epicenter of like all things illiberal and authoritarian um but but on the the other on the other hand like um you know we we talk about like like biden's like well you don't have f-15s and nukes so how can you possibly take on a tyrannical united states government or whatever and and we think about how stupid that is but like frankly though living in close like i guess insurgent tactics um and just the existential threat that there might be insurgent tactics um, it's a lot more effective in urban areas because uh, you can drone strike somebody's house who's living on 10 acres or whatever, but uh, you're not going to drone strike an apartment complex. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so like, I don't know, I guess it's, it's a trade-off. Um, if you want to live free, I mean, hey, I'm all about it. I can't wait to, you know, to move back to, to the country like I, I used to be, um, right, like I grew up. but. Uh, you know, at the same time, like, I guess, like, the, you know, prominent, I don't know, it's a double-edged sword, I guess, like, as, as far as, I guess it, it depends where in the timeline you are, how bad things have gotten. To, to be fair, though, they did, uh, I think it was in Philadelphia, um, they did drop a bomb on a, that's true, in the middle of the city. That's true. Uh, yeah, that is very true. Um, I, I mean, I guess it's, <laughs> I guess it comes down to that, right? Like, do they care or not? I, I don't know. I mean, at some level, like that might be more dangerous now, uh, especially, well, for, I don't know. There's a lot of like cultural nuance to what happened there. Um, I think in those days, the general attitude of the institutional government did lean against uh, urban black culture i guess and they just destroyed a bunch of urban black culture 
and uh and like nobody cared as much but that was like several decades ago um now i i think that i don't think they get away with something like that now um and some of that's because like people care now and uh and you know like the cultural landscape has changed but also just like the the way information travels i mean if something like that happens there'll be like a dozen cell phone videos of it happening and uh and you know people be on the scene immediately talking about it it's like you know the everybody be talking about it on the podcast all the independent journalists and media would would jump into into action and like they couldn't just like sweep it under the rug uh the way they did then and then also like i guess i mean maybe to some degree people of a similar culture still flock together but um, the more intermixed it is, uh, you, you don't want to like, if everybody's the same living in some apartment complex, you kind of get away with that. But if, um, if you've got like different cultures, you know, you're going to, you're going to end up turning your political allies into political enemies when you, when you, uh, when you bomb their apartment complex. So I, I don't know, I guess, I mean, it's a, it's a good point, but at least uh, I think it's, um, the possibility of friendly fire uh, is, is a strong deterrent. I don't know. I mean, I guess like we're, we're getting like kind of like lost in the weeds of, of, uh, of like the tactical game here when we really care about strategy in this, but anyway. Yeah, I was just being a smart ass. Um, <laughs> and I took it seriously. So I guess I fell in that trap, right? It's okay. So yeah, kind of going back to those insurgent tactics, what, what do you think is effective right now? I don't know. Like I, I'm, I'm far. I mean, my business partner Michael's like better to say. As far as like actual combat, as far as you know, like leads flying, th- well, or not lead in the case of our bullets is flying through the air. Um, I don't know. Like I, I try to like stay, stay out of that um, as much as possible, which is like kind of funny because we make tools for that kind of thing. But uh, as far as my perspective, I hope it stays just kind of an existential threat um i don't i mean like here it is like call me weak or whatever but like i I make these like scary weapons that are meant to kill more effectively but i I hope that they're never used i hope like that the dagger exists as an existential threat i don't want anybody whether it's like you know a common burglar or you know some antifa thug looking to kill somebody that has more wealth than he he does or or you know some renegade law enforcement outfit like whatever the case is whatever the the assailant is or whoever um i hope that this isn't used like i I don't want people to be killed with this stuff i hope that it's an existential threat and it's just like oh well i can't just wear body armor and think that i can victimize whoever i want without consequences i hope that victims are now armed with something that will defeat armor something that is you know more terminally effective uh than existing ammo i hope that that kind of ups the ante and uh and puts people on a more equal footing that it that it's an existential threat that makes such potential assailants reconsider their actions rather than um hoping that they're going to die for their crimes i suppose yeah no i totally agree yeah i guess I could have framed that a little bit better. Um, I I think using utilizing violence against the state right now is 
well, first of all, I think the state declared war against his people or is in perpetual war against um, the population. But I think using violence in that regard is is generally a bad idea um, because the state, that's like their strong suit and what they're, you know, equipped to do and their way of enforcing things. Yes. Um, so I, I, I tend to discourage um, use of violence in that regard. Um, but yeah, I mean, your, your business model, I think is interesting uh, as an insurgent business. And I think a lot of other businesses can, can learn from it as well uh, that maybe aren't in the firearms industry because we're seeing, you know, the firearms industry has traditionally been one of the most heavily scrutinized and targeted uh, industries out there, you know, with financial censorship, you know, and other issues. Um, and I think it's coming to other places as well. It's, it's getting crazy. Um, so I guess like, what do, what do you, what are like good insurgent business practices? That's just like hard to say, I guess this like touches on, on my, um, my talk. I got, I got the, the notes here, um, to talk about it if you want. Sure. Uh, yeah, I guess like I could start listing stuff, but um, yeah, like I don't mean for this just to be like gun specific. Um, so I don't know, maybe I could like cut through like maybe a list of notes and just be like, I guess like the, the, the thing is, is like you can be in business to make money, which is typically what you would be in business for is like maximize profits and and uh, get yourself some economic value or take as much economic value as you can. Mm. Um, but I mean, if you're striving after money, you're not striving after, after freedom. Um, I, uh, I guess like in my, in my Christian background uh, that I believe in so strongly, like you don't have to be a Christian to get this, but like Christ says, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon is like, Mammon is like uh, money incarnate, so it's like it's like um, like the love of money, or or just like uh, you know, like tr treasure seeking kind of kind of thing. And at the same time, like uh, you know, to apply that secularly, you cannot you cannot serve both freedom and and money. So you know, like the market is a powerful force, and you can't ignore that. Like the world runs on economic demand. So you got to make money if you're going to be effective most of the time, or at least to maximize effectiveness, you got to make money. Um, but the question is like, are you serving that profit interest or are you serving uh, kind of this political or insurgent interest? Um, so like, you don't want to compete. You don't want to be in the business of competing. Like if you're doing something, if you're in a business where you're competing, like, oh, we're making a nice AR-15 over here and they're making an AR-15 over there, and we want to sell more of our model of AR-15. Uh, that's just for the gun industry, for instance. But like, that's not getting you anywhere. Yeah, you're selling guns that people can use to protect themselves, I guess. But like, you're not. It, it's it's pointless. Like, no matter what happens, people are buying AR-15s. It doesn't matter how much of that market you grab or not. So like, if you're in competition with somebody else, you're not going to change the world. If you want to change the world, you got to do what nobody else is doing. So in fact, like you, if you're like the extent to which you are competing with someone else in the market or like a similar product, a similar service, whatever, 
that is the extent to which you are useless at actually doing, at actually changing anything, I guess I, I might say. So like that's, um, I guess like that, that's the biggest thing is like, you don't do what everybody else does. You got to do something different. And it, you know, I'm saying like, I, I used to work for instance, I used to work in the private space industry. Um, that was a cool place to be. It was cool to be surrounded by that stuff. I got to like see and design spacecraft every day when I went to work, whatever. It doesn't matter. Like everybody working at SpaceX, everybody working at Bigelow, like I did, there are, you know, there are 10,000 applicants wanting to take the same job. If you didn't do as somebody else would, and that's how you know you're not making a difference. That's, that's why, you know, even if you're working with cool stuff, your, your work is not cool. It's not, it's not interesting because it would happen without you. So I guess like the first thing is you got to find something that nobody else is going to do or at least nobody else is going to do correctly or effectively. That's the first point. Awesome. Yeah, I, I want to come back to this. Bigelow, uh, was that that real estate mogul in Vegas? That's also- That's super- right. Yeah. He's a crackpot. He's, a, he's an absolute nutbag. Thinks he's been abducted by aliens. <laughs> um, it was a cool company to work for. He was kind of the reason why it wasn't very effective um, because he was, he was a mere businessman uh, and he tried to play like he could be an engineer. So, um, but that, that's like, that's a, a whole other tangent, but um, yeah, the, it was inflatable spacecraft. So the idea was he would launch this module on a rocket. It would connect to a space station or another module like itself and it would inflate. Uh, which would give you more volume inside uh, for a crew to live in or, or work in or whatever, then could actually fit on the rocket because it would inflate once it, you know, came out of the rocket. So uh, very cool. And um, a lot that I learned there helped me uh, with the dagger project. But in the end, I became quickly disillusioned with, with working there because again, it's just like, it's, it's uh, I'm interchangeable like SpaceX is interchangeable. If it wasn't SpaceX, it'd be somebody else. Like nothing that they're doing, like they're doing it very well. They're very effective at what they do. And I'll say that is like, they're more effective than other companies would be very likely, but it would get done. Um, So I guess like with with the Dagger project, like APM has been illegal for, what is this? Now six, uh, 35 years now. And nobody's tried to fix that problem but before we came along. It wasn't that we were more effective than somebody else. It's like literally nobody was going to do it. Nobody was trying to fix this problem before us. Um, so, yeah, I guess at least that's how my personal choices um, have been made with respect to this point. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so that that first steps, I think, is an interesting uh, one and, and an important one of going out and doing something that, you know, is not as common and it seems like, I mean, the pursuit to create the Dagny dagger is, it, it seems like a pretty risky one um, in the sense of like the state can just change a, a rural, like 
very simply. And yeah, well, people ask us about that, and and the answer is kind of complicated. I guess like the thing is, is like when you're going, when you're, you know, forging your own path through the rainforest or whatever with your with your machete, um, yeah, you can run into trouble. So like you take steps to ensure that you don't run into trouble. I mean, there are ways to like decrease risk. Um, but like, you know, when you do something like this, you become an expert and you know, every, like I've had to know, I have become an expert in like everything to do with what we're doing. Not just the, you know, the engineering, the business, uh, the, you know, like the market space, the legal terrain. Um, and you know, like all those, all those aspects present their own risks, you know, like nobody's done this before because it's really, really hard to do what we're doing. And uh, there was a time when I thought that we would, we, we might fail that we would likely fail, in fact. Um, and luckily we kind of got over that and I'm very gracious for that. Um, in the business side of things, there's not really a market for this. I mean, how many people are wanting to buy armor, you know, penetrating ammunition? Um, and uh, you know, on the legal thing, yeah, the government will just like shut us down, right? So like to address those separately, um, well, I guess as far as like the engineering side of things goes, that, that risk, I'm a good engineer. I did not get in, I did not start a project in proliferating, you know, like pharmaceutical drugs or anything. I, I believe in that. I believe in making that more free also. I didn't get into that. It's not my area of expertise. I could not easily become that expert. Instead, I worked in a place where I knew like I got this locked down and if it's possible, it's gonna be me. Um, as far as the business things goes, um, I like to talk about, you know, like, the point of this project is, make, is to make an armor penetrating bullet. Easy enough. We did that a long time ago. That's not good enough. You, wanna, you have to succeed in the market. And if it doesn't, well, then that's the big risk is that it, it won't succeed in the market. So what did we do? We made an armor penetrating hollow point. We made it uh, function as a hollow point in addition to its functionality uh, for armor penetration, a wholly novel concept um, so now we're going to be the best armor penetrating ammunition that ever was. And uh, it's, it's got this multi-role thing. So like you, when you carry, you know, you got your carry gun full of ammunition, you take it to the store, the thing, you know, you're not going to choose for that to be armor, pe uh, armor penetrating ammunition. You're going to choose for that to be good against the most likely threat. And, uh, and you want some expansion, you want that, you know, devastating terminal effect. So we built that into it in addition. But just that wasn't enough. So we took we took pains to make sure that it has like the highest energy per pressure. So um, you know the energy of this thing is is above that of forty five ACP, even though it's a it's a nine millimeter. It's just that much better. It's optimized in a way that other ammunition isn't. So you know th that's it. Like that's how you take care of the business risk is is like you know pay attention to it and. And, and throw it out. You can ameliorate it just by taking these measures. On the legal side of things, I mean, the legal plan to keep this thing legal and to maneuver around this legislation was there long before I even started working on, on the, the technicals, on the engineering of it. And, um, you know, you have to like know this environment and you have to know how to, how to maneuver. You have to know what you're doing. You don't go forge a path into the jungle uh, you know, after living in New York City all your life, you, you know, you, you, you get used to the outdoors, you, you understand, you read about and you understand survival, you, you uh, know how to read a map and a compass and, and you know what you're doing before you approach it. 
And so, you know, like, it's not like the ATF can just say, oh, okay, well, this stuff is illegal now. They do have to, they do have to reach for some kind of legislation that's given to them by Congress. So the way that the legislation is written, they can't just like add our technology into that ban. Um, it would take an act of Congress to do that. And what does that mean? Well, first, again, all this stuff is like driven and you gotta understand the landscape. And that landscape is that all of this is driven by pop culture, right? It, it doesn't matter that there's a congressman that wants to do something. That ain't how it works. You have to have like this big old movement with all kinds of just like hundreds of millions of dollars thrown behind it to even make it an issue that any congressman or senator is, is going to want to write legislation for. And then, and then they've got a, and then they've got like this massive team of let's see, so like the, the pop culture moment has to be made first. Then they've got, you know, this massive team of lawyers, all who are paid, you know, like $500,000 a year or whatever. And they go through all this trouble, all this man hour, all this cost to draft this legislation. Then it goes to a committee. And then it has to matter to the committee more than any of the other legislation that committee is, is considering. And then it has to get passed from that committee onto the floor of either the House or the Senate. And then they have to debate about it endlessly and they have to talk about amendments and then they've got to pass it. And then it goes to the other, other House, uh, whether it's the, the House or the, the Senate to talk about. And they debate it endlessly and add, add amendments, send it back to the other, other House for approval. You're like, this process is ridiculous. And then finally, maybe they pass it and they ban what we've done. But we're like six backup plans deep. So they go through all that trouble. We jump to a backup plan and we're back up and running in a couple months. And so like, there might be perceived risk all over the place with us, but it's, it's all about like how you manage it. And you can't like, if you're gonna do this, if you're gonna change the world, you, <laughs> You cannot change the world if you're just gonna be an engineer. You cannot change the world if you're just gonna be you know, a philosopher. Definitely not if you're just a philosopher. If you're a businessman, you're worthless, you know, right? Like you have to be this kind of like holistic being. You have to understand the world around you. You gotta like jump out of just, you're like, oh, I'm gonna put on blinders and this is what I'm gonna do in life because that is what's gonna make me easy, stable money. Um, it's hard to run an operation that changes the world. It's really easy to get money because that's what the world is built for. Stay in your lane, make your money. Um, but yeah, it's like full of risks and you can manage that and you can cut those risks down to even lower uh, than even like a standard business sometimes if you know what you're doing, but you have to kind of like invest that, that effort and, and become the expert in every aspect of what you're working on. Yeah, have you read uh, Cody Wilson's book, Come and Take It? Yeah, I have. <laughs> Are you not a fan? Well, you know, look, I, I'm trying, I try real hard not to burn that bridge with, yeah. with Wilson. Um, he has his part to play in everything. And I don't want to cut that down. But... I wish that the engineers, the programmers, the people that did the work at Defense Distributed got the credit that they deserved. Um, I see 
So Cody is, Cody is uh, he's an anarchist, which is kind of funny to use this term, but he's a politician, right? Like um, he speaks well, he's got a silver tongue. And with that silver tongue, he, he can manipulate people like politicians do very, very well. And a lot of that has been unfair. And a lot of it has been very successful in, I guess, like whipping people up into uh, these, you know, these communities and kind of like the subversive ends of, of uh, firearms technology and in Bitcoin. Um, frankly, talking to you about this is kind of like some forbidden territory for me to be talking about. So sure. good job. Good job getting me there. Um, I, I guess there's like a lot I don't want to say about it. But specifically, when I talk about running an insurgent business and what it takes to like actually make something happen and do something important for the world, you can't be like that. You can't just talk. You can't just talk and be the face of a, of a company that's full of people that are, that are actually building it. Um, and this world is in such terrible shape because like most similarly, most CEOs are narcissists and psychopaths. I mean, this is, this is like statistically, like academically, you know, documented. And they exist kind of to, to, they are very good at manipulating those around them and those under them and kind of sapping the credit, both financial and social from the people that are actually building their companies, right? Um, Elon Musk got all of his money from PayPal which before Bitcoin was worth something. Now it's not because we have Bitcoin now and even he would believe that. Um, he built this entire, this enormous company, but the, the world only knows him because now he's a mere administrator. He's a paper pusher. He makes like, you know, he doesn't build anything. He sits at a desk and tells other people what to build. Um, and I think that Elon Musk is so successful. Um, and to his credit, he is so successful because he views things holistically. He is not like, even though he's relegated himself just to being a mere administrator, he is an administrator that does understand the engineering, which is a lot more than most you know, executives are able to do. Most of them are completely worthless except for you know, being a, a body to talk business and, and negotiate. Um, but he understands the engineering part of it and he runs a business as an engineer would. Um, so yeah, like the ghost gunner is a, is a fantastic machine and I'm, I hold a lot of admiration for its, its designers, especially its, its chief designer, who's also the same guy who, who designed the Liberator. He's the one who built the Liberator. It's the same guy that's primarily behind the ghost gunner. They're their chief engineer over there. Um, but when I look at this defense distributed, like it's a lot of the times, unfortunately, I feel like Atlas Arms has to be what dis defense distributed was supposed to be this like defense contractor for the people. Um, but, you know, Cody is really, really good at motivating people and people are motivated just like, you know, like any other politician to not, you know, they motivate people not by building a real fundamental uh, reality, but by kind of just poking the bear and making these provocations. Um, the Liberator pistol, not effective, except as a, as a political provocation. 
Um, the ghost gunner has potential. It's not there yet because, well, for a few reasons. Uh, it was made not to live up to what it could have been. Um, but it is a, I will say, is a very effective machine. And uh, I'll look forward to what's possible with it in the future. Um, Dark Wallet didn't, didn't pan out. Um, so yeah, like, I hate to say it because, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to denigrate what's like worthwhile there. But um, we had to do this because literally because Defense Distributed would not help me with, with this project in the beginning. I was trying to do advanced firearms uh, projects, but Cody told me to get lost and he wasn't interested because, it, you know, and he needed his engineer, his engineer's time uh, more, more than I did. So uh, we had to build this company literally because Defense Distributed wasn't, wasn't going to help do this work. And uh, I, I hate to do it, but like, I have to use that as an example of like what not to do. If you want to change the world, you you got to like build something. You can't just talk about it. You can't just provoke the bear. We only, I mean, it's it's easy to know if you're like red pilled enough. It's easy to know how the media works. It's easy enough to know how to manipulate the state of affairs. Um, but as like uh, what is it? The the pinned tweet on my on my Twitter right now is um, what is it? This is not a world of pamphleteers but of engineers, the spark gap is mightier than the pen. And, and that's what it is. I mean, even Defense Distributed, ironically, was like founded on this idea of stop talking about stuff, stop trying to convince people, and just change the facts on the ground, change reality. And that's what you got to do. So I guess I'll stop talking about that now. Yeah, that's good. I, I was just asking about the book because it sounded similar to what you're talking about as far as being an expert on all things, but I get your perspective. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I definitely like, yeah, I don't know. It is interesting how that's a kind of a forbidden topic. And I think, uh, you know, Cody's legacy has been bringing attention to the space for sure. And I see the value of, you know, what you're saying as far as like the importance of actually building out the things um, that people use and how that changes the landscape as well. But yeah. It's, it's a, it's a hard thing. Um, I mean, there's a reason why these personalities excel because they're really good at manipulating. They're really good at building like, I don't know, followings, fan clubs and, and, you know, like fanatic market support. And, uh, and it's a hard thing to address when, when you have to like, look at, you have to like, look at these figures and be like, you know like it's what are you what are you doing i mean and that's and that's why like it's it's a hard thing so like that support is there and it's a hard thing to come out and be like hey look yeah 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 whatever we got to go like we got to do like real things now okay we got to move move past this and do what it was supposed to do in the first place and and a, and a lot of people are like very defensive about that because i mean for a long time i mean and it still is you talk to reason magazine and people that are like eight years behind the times and they think oh 3d printed firearms we should talk to cody wilson even though cody wilson hasn't cody wilson hasn't had anything to do with 3d printed guns and since like what 2014 or something and uh and even then don't talk to him don't talk to the the administrators talk to the people who build stuff talk to the programmers talk to the engineers talk to the <laughs> 
Talk to the construction workers. Who cares if Trump is building a new business complex in New York City? Whatever. He's just the money guy. He's just the marketing. Like it's it's just it's just for show. Talk to the people who are building that building. Talk to the engineers, the architects, right? Like that's that's the meat of the matter. And then likewise, like on the flip side of that coin, people who build stuff, um, coders, especially in like in the Bitcoin space and the in the the uh, cryptography space and, and in the gun space and all of this, like people who are building, like it, it's not enough to just like geek out over your, over your profession. You've got to like grow a pair and stand up, talk about it. You know, like don't, don't like allow somebody else to take, because like credit and responsibility are two sides of the same coin, right? Like if you, if you give somebody the credit for something, then you're also like abdicating responsibility for it. Uh, and to take responsibility for what you're working on, what you're doing, what you believe in, um, is also to take the credit for it. Uh, so we, you know, it is only possible for these like useless people to run the world and grab up all the financial and social credit because the people who are actually doing the work are not satisfying the responsibility to be, you know, an engineer and a philosopher and a legal scholar and a businessman, like be everything. And like that, that idea though goes back a long time. Like that's the idea of like the, the liberal man, um, you know, back in, you know, back in um, enlightenment times, back in, you know, especially like during like the, the ideals that, that established this country in the, in the first place is that like every, like a government of, for, and by the people, like that was it, that, that encompasses, that's like the governmental side of the idea that you should be your own civic being. You should like, don't abdicate your, when you abdicate the responsibilities that you hold for making your decisions to somebody else, you also abdicate your rights and, and your credit, right? So if you wanna keep your rights, you, you have to be your own person. You don't throw that, you don't like take this burden and you throw it up to like the great men who are gonna run your society, run your company, uh, tell you what to do for your own good. You take that burden onto yourself and, and you satisfy your obligation uh, you know, for every aspect of the work that you are doing. So, yeah. Yeah. Kind of being that Renaissance man. It's yeah. I guess like, that's a way to say it. When we say Renaissance man, usually we're talking about like, Oh, somebody that's particularly skilled that they can be all over the place. But I feel like that should be a default. Like you're, you're not, you're not correctly understanding the human experience. If you're not able to at least understand and appreciate the arts and the sciences and industry and how business works and the legal system you live under. Like this is, this shouldn't be some like, you know, rare ideal, some, some like, uh, you know, up in the stars kind of thing. Like every individual has a responsibility to understand the world they're living in and every aspect of it enough to maneuver however they need, I guess. Yeah. It, so. Yeah. I think, I think what's interesting and what I've been, uh, have you heard of this idea of the remnant before? Uh, no. So there is a, this kind of a, a meme circulating through, um, the Bitcoin world right now where there's 
based off of this article called Isaiah's Job by Albert J. Nock. And it's the idea that the, there's a small minority of people uh, in history that have influence and control things. And the masses are people that are kind of what you're describing right now that just kind of default their responsibility yeah. to whoever. Um, and so that's, I think, like, as far as, like, the perspective of creating change, finding that, that group of intolerant, the intolerant minority that is willing to stand up and practice the things that you're talking about leads the masses in that direction. I think that's um, super interesting perspective. And I think for the type of work that you're doing um, and what I'm trying to do and aspire to be, um, it's incredibly encouraging of knowing that like, you know, the popular opinion is always going to be kind of blah and those people aren't really worth um, the effort, but we don't even need to convince them, you know, to, to lead into some meaningful change in the long term. Yeah. Well, I mean, you convince them by just changing the reality that they live in. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to say, oh, it should be like this. It's another thing to tell them it is like this. You know, uh, so yeah, you can, you know, the, I guess like the gun example or like what Alice Arms does, like it's one thing to say armor piercing ammunition should be legal. It's another thing to say your legislations can't control it. You just can't. You failed. And armor piercing ammunition or armor penetrating, I should be. Uh, clearer about that uh technically um is it does exist there's not a damn thing you can do to stop it so get used to it on the bitcoin side um with what like atlas arms is doing it's one thing it's one thing to say oh you should accept bitcoin oh you should buy bitcoin you should get into bitcoin because of inflation because of privacy because of financial censorship or whatever then you take like then you take like the expected step. Like if you're doing that and you have a business that doesn't accept Bitcoin, then you're just a straight up hypocrite. Then, then you take like the minimal step of accepting Bitcoin. Okay, that's not enough either. You can't just accept Bitcoin. You have to prefer Bitcoin. You have to, you have to do what Alice Arms is gonna do and find people, make them pay a fee for giving you inferior currency instead of Bitcoin, right? Like that's, that changes the facts on the ground. If somebody comes to buy our ammo and they've heard, yeah, yeah, I should get into Bitcoin, whatever, you know. Okay, well, yeah, some people accept it. They come to our site and they say, oh, these people selling this product, I want to buy, prefer cryptocurrency, and I'm going to be at a loss because I'm not transacting in Bitcoin. You know, that's, that's what needs to happen. Like, you, that's the kind of thing... I mean, if people get pissed about it, sure. Like people be mad that they're having to pay one, two dollars fee or whatever. Um, but you know, that's that's just how it goes. Like that's one of those things. Do you want to do you want to maximize your profits or do you want to maximize your effectiveness in the world? So. Yeah, I like that perspective a lot. I, I think it kind of comes back to this. So Freud. Uh, had this idea that like man's ultimate uh, pursuit um, or was like the pursuit of pleasure. And I think that's, you know, rather silly um, and not accurate. I think like the highest level we can attain is more of like what, um, what's his face? Uh, 
I forgot his name. He wrote Man's Search for Meaning. Um, it sounds familiar, but I don't know who. I, it's so bad that I don't remember this, but um, he, the author was talking about like the highest uh, level that we can attain is actually like striving for purpose and meaning in our life. And that is, yeah. So, uh, I mean, Atlas Arms uh, and the Dagny Dagger, basically our, our whole like aesthetic at Atlas Arms is built on Atlas Shrugged, which is of course like a novel by Ayn Rand. And uh, while I certainly break with her philosophy of, of objectivism uh, on many different issues, that is kind of like what's center to it. I used to describe it in, in like the simplest, most reductive terms possible. Um, objectivism is hedonism of happiness, where like, it's not striving after pleasure that your life is about. It is finding that meaning that you can fulfill, which will make you happy. That is the purpose of life. And I don't even think that like as a, as a Christian, I find, I mean, I find that to be like, I guess like favorable or, or agreeable. That is a good purpose of life, but not the purpose of life. Um, but still, I mean, it's, it's still like, uh, it's still like a worthy virtue. I suppose. Um, pleasure does not sustain, but happiness based on setting one's values and attaining those values or purpose uh, does, does bring happiness. So, I mean, we, we, we believe in that very highly over here, right? Like shun profits, acquire value. That's, that's what we do, um, at least as much as we can, as much as we you know, like need the profits to, to achieve that value. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw you kind of going after the Catholic church, which I appreciated. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, but this goes like deep, like, I know this is not a religious podcast. I'm probably going to like piss off some Catholics in your audience, but like, it's, it's like worth talking about. And it's just like an aspect of something that they like really, people really need to understand if you care about Liberty this is like the, the enemy of like liberty is not just like overarching authoritarianism because some guy with a twirling mustache wants to wants to uh, control the world, right? Like Hegel, like Hegel was this guy who was like this philosopher that theorized about how, how in the future, in the great progressive future, the state will take care of all of your needs and you will just serve the state as your master, but it won't matter because it's giving you, you know, all the sustenance and all the pleasure and all of the resources you need to survive. And you will love the state because it, it provides for you as a caretaker, right? And like the deeper philosophy there is the idea that like the masses are stupid, the individuals are dumb, and that there are only a few great men, you would call them, um, that like are smart enough and wise enough and healthy enough or whatever to have the the wisdom and guidance to rule over the masses and that's why the masses have to be ruled over is because they're they're stupid and they need you know these better people to rule over them if you play that on like a, on a racial level it's like white man's burden right like the kind of like the the soft racism of uh white people are superior so you know we we have to uh we we have to take one for the team and be the saviors of, of lesser races, right? It means the same thing applied to like individuals in the state is like, oh no, the, 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 the masses are unwashed. They're not, 
you know, they, they don't have sufficient access to truth and wisdom. But like the Catholics are in Western history, like <laughs> the historical bad guys. And we know this, right? Like the Catholic hierarchy was created and the institution of the Catholic church was created in the middle medieval ages so that these clergy and this power structure could rule the world. Like that was what it was all about. Um, everything in that world was made to exclude the common man and make them be reliant on the authority of this, you know, ecclesiastical hierarchy. Um, and then, and then what, and, but, but look, in the, in the medieval age, it goes hand in hand, like the, the king being that great man that you as a lowly peasant couldn't possibly hope to replace, you'd be dependent on his wisdom uh, to rule over you. Um, that was side by side with the, with the you know, ecclesiastical authority of, of the clergy. And we, know, we all know how that happens. We know medieval history. We know that the Catholic church and you know, these, these medieval empires were, were hand in hand. They were, they were parallel institutions as uh, as tight with each other as corporations and the state are in, in like a fascist system. And we all know about how when people were like, hey, maybe I don't need, I don't need to confess my sins to a priest. Maybe I can have this relationship with God directly, with God being truth and wisdom. If I can have this relationship with God and with truth and wisdom directly, if I can access that directly, what do I need these people to rule over me for? That was the beginning. Like when, when people started saying that, that was the end of the dark ages and uh and the beginning of the enlightenment when people and and we know like you know people prospered in liberty people prospered in technology and science and understanding and quality of life um and uh and you know the, there are the religious incarnations like the like the catholic church and there are the uh, you know there are the political implementations like you know, the state, nation states or, or whatever. But this idea that great men are irreplaceable and that as the commons, we cannot, you know, we cannot do this ourselves. We have to go to these intermediaries. This is the most unfree and enslaved thinking that, that is out there, right? There is not authoritarianism because people are cowering before some great you know, dictator who just wants to rule the world. It happens because these, because the commons are thinking so poorly of themselves that they think that they need these intermediaries. So, you know, these, why, why do, why do these useless CEOs and administrators pull in, you know, millions of dollars a year while the people that build their company don't get any credit, financial or little financial credit and no social credit, right? Because these engineers, these builders, these workers, these programmers, these doers, right? Have this Hegelian thinking. They think that they need these intermediaries, these useless, uh, these useless great men that talk a big game and play some nice diplomacy and are really good at manipulating, but in the end offer they're, they're just this terrible middleman between, between the commons, people like you and me, and like achieving these values, these, um, uh, you know, achieving like self-actualization. 
becoming our own people, making our own decisions, ruling our own lives, um, and like carving out our own, you know, value space to achieve for the for the the ends of happiness. So, like, I don't mean to attack like the Catholic Church in general, but like at some level, it is the the like religious impl implementation of this Hegelian thinking that is what keeps people down in life, politically, religiously, and I don't know, like professionally, you might say, or personally. Um, and that's the kind of thinking that like, that's, that needs to stop. So, yeah. There you go. No, I like that. I like that a lot. And uh, yeah, I've always been incredibly confused um, from a biblical standpoint on how the Pope is justified and how that structure is justified. So historically, it worked like uh, when Constantine, the emperor of, of Rome, made Christianity the official religion of Rome, it brought in, I mean, like when people were dying for the Christian faith, obviously, like you had to be like really, really faithful and committed to be a Christian. But then it became like, oh, the fad. It's just like, well, how Catholics now be like, oh, I'm Catholic. When's the last time you went to mass? Oh, like. 11 years ago, right? Um, when it becomes just kind of like the cultural default, like people don't care as much anymore. I guess that's like, um, I don't know, maybe that's just my opinion and, and a bit of commentary, but more than that, because everybody is a Christian now, they would start to like meet the these uh, congregations which were once autonomous and functioned as autonomous units, um, which is very interesting because like, <laughs> I mean, that kind of mirrors the centralization that people like you and me and those interested in Bitcoin and printed guns and that want to see in the world. This, this idea of like decentralism uh, begetting like truth and freedom. But these congregations that had been entirely autonomous were able to like meet out in the open. And they were, they started to have like uh, conventions where like all the, the leaders of these congregations would meet together and talk about things on a global level, which is you know, like must've been very exciting and very fulfilling uh, for them after all these many years of, of being oppressed. Um, and they would meet in Alexandria and Rome and uh, Constantinople or Byzantium or whatever, Istanbul, whatever you wanna call the city. Um, and these conventions started to have, started to develop like, like um, council members or chairs or like, you know, organizing committees and that, that organizing committee and the, and the chairperson, uh, the chairman of that organizing committee eventually turned into like solidified into the Catholic hierarchy and the Pope at the top of it. And that's why, and we, that's why we saw like, and then eventually you know, Alexandria fell to uh, the, the Islamic world and, uh, and then Constantinople, of course, like, and Rome became the, the split, um, you know, the great schism happened and they became the, the separate denominations, Orthodox and Catholic. So from a historical perspective, that's how it happened. <laughs> yeah, but it's not biblical. No, not at all. I mean, I'm not here to discuss religion, I guess, as a main point, though I'm very interested and convicted in it, and it's important to me. But, um, but no, like, essentially, the Catholic Church, as it has existed historically, and as it exists now, founded, you know, like, as an institution, and solidified the way it did, specifically to give the hierarchical structure of these clergy um, more power and uh, 
cause the commons to be dependent on them. So. Makes sense. Yeah. Hmm. This is something I've been mulling around in my head because I, I see a lot of, you know, similar issues in the Catholic church as the Protestant church um, currently. And I think part of it is that exactly what you're talking about of like this emphasis on, on individual worship or, you know, placing these people in positions of power. I mean, yeah, hero worship is a dark road. <laughs> and I, it, it's interesting to look at like the functionality of the early church. Um, uh, I had Alex Gladstein uh, or not, sorry, Alex Fetsky on my podcast and we were discussing uh, how I think Bitcoin, like an effective resistance model against the state and um, just against totalitarianism period is very similar to what uh, these resistance church movements look like um, in early Rome or, or well, not early Rome, but in Rome before it was widely accepted and Christians were being put to death or like in communist China right now, or, you know, in the Soviet union in the past, I think these, you know, cells of decentralized cells of people, you know, coming together, it's incredibly important. And I, I wonder if religion in general will move more in that direction in the future um, as a result of technologies like Bitcoin. I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. I mean, it, it seems like the movement of technology, it seems like there's like two competing te technological realms. One of them is like big data and artificial intelligence, which is trying to like centralize everything and bring it under, you know, um, central control or at least like central comprehension. And then like everything else seems like the whole point of it is democratization or centralization, decentralization, um, trying to make things, yeah, decentralized in structure, freer to access, um, more local. Um, and I certainly hope that that wins out and I would love to see that in the church as well. I hope that, but you know, the, there exists, you know, in the, the Catholic hierarchy is, in, is the oldest and the most crystallized in the Christian world. Um, but of course, like all these other denominations, like Baptist, Methodist, they have their own inter-congregational hierarchies that control what they do. And, and, these, uh, and there are these like centralized structures that, you know, as we <laughs> can only lead to, can only lead to, uh, what like more corrupt authority i mean we see that in the rest of the world like, like why do we think it would be different in religion um i guess like man i really didn't think i would go in this direction when i started this podcast but um myself the there are there's like a non-denominational movement of churches called uh the churches of christ that started with their restoration movement the idea that like okay we're gonna dump all the Catholic stuff, we're going to dump all of the denominational stuff, all of the hierarchies, all of the, you know, the Reformation or whatever, and we're just going to go back to the Bible, and we're going to try to be the decentralized, uh, autonomous congregations that you see in the in the Bible, and like Acts, and, and you know, all of Paul's letters, and, and Revelation, and that kind of thing, where they were decentralized, and, um, you know, I... I Biblical doctrine is like a difficult concept, and I do have, I do have kind of indictments of some bad doctrine in uh, the congregations with which I associate with, but they're like smaller points, I guess. And um, one of the greatest things is that 
they are free from the the uh, corrupting power of of such centralization and i really man like as i talk to like the anarchist crowd especially the ones who are religious i like really wish that they were open to like talking about this um and then like they can see the advantages of decentralization with everything else so like guys you know like decentralize your churches stop stop you know playing the oppressed commoner to the great men of of these like uh uh denominational hierarchies and like break out into your own thing like do do it yourself like rid yourself of the corruption of these of these higher structures um and uh i guess like i would i would love i just would really love to talk to any anarchists who are religiously interested about you know how centralization is what screwed up the church in the first place and and kind of the decentralized alternatives that you can look for now yeah no i find that stuff really super interesting um i think a lot of people in the bitcoin space are non-religious which i think is cool and interesting um uh but i think it's important to understand like look at these things as far as like a cultural perspective and uh, historical perspective because they have such an influence on our history and on our day-to-day life um and yeah i mean like it just drives me drives me nuts because you know i'm i would call myself a christian as well you know and i've been a part of like a few churches where there's been you know sex scandals and stuff like that with like some and it's just like this this seems so fixable you know, in the sense of like, we just um, tear down, you know, these structures um, where, yeah, your your perspective on uh, just the disempowering message given to the masses that we need these leaders or rulers, uh, I find that really interesting. And it's kind of a perspective that I see a lot. I, I think that's done, you know, very, very intentionally of like attacking people's basic security through economics and, you know, other, other forms to just prevent individuals from getting on their feet. And I see gun control as a big issue in that regard. It's like, we're going to disempower the individual as much as possible. And it seems like it's a game of incentives. And I feel like, you know, Bitcoin entering into the church would be an interesting one because now, you know, the church is able to have some economic stability and, you know, not have to potentially even, you know, beg the state for permission to exist, uh, you know, with their tax uh, stuff or, yeah, whatever you call it. And uh, I think that changes the incentives a lot and could open up for that to be more practical, a practical reality. So it's, yeah. Maybe so. I, um, I, I have to say like, like specifically, I'm, I don't fear anything specific at an organizational level as like somebody once said, the church can do all of its, uh, godly business with, um, a book, a loaf of bread and a bottle of wine. So, uh, you know, like it, it is very resilient in that way. And if, you know, if the, if the state starts stealing <clears throat> from the, from the, the church directly, like, I mean, it's not all over. The church has survived much worse. It's hard to get like much worse than Nero, but, uh, 
Um, but I guess in those moments, you do find out who's faithful and who's, who's LARPing. Um, but I will say, like, there's, there's been, like, um, a, church, a congregation of my association, I guess I, I might say in technical language, um, has been involved in, like, mission work in Nigeria, where they're helping, like, build churches and, like, uh, buildings and help people get transported to church and, and that kind of thing. And, they, and uh, you know, just general, general mission work, uh, physical and spiritual in Nigeria. And, um, you know, their, their country is so corrupt and the, uh, anymore, the government of it leans very Islamic. So you can't send them money because they just like, they will rip it open and pocket it if they see it, it's from a, it's to a church. Um, so, uh, it's been, but then like, you got to bring the money with you physically, which is of course, terribly dangerous for somebody in such a place to be carrying like loads of cash. Well, Bitcoin solves this as they like to say. So I can see like things like that, having the church move money in a way that is, uh, enabling the church, just like anybody else, I guess, like to move money or economic value in a way that's like less accessible to would-be robbers uh, is definitely a, like a good tool, yeah. Yeah. I guess like one of the things that gets me really excited about Bitcoin in the sense of like, I, I, I definitely subscribe to the sovereign individual thesis that the internet is gonna radically change the way that we um, organize and govern. And I think there's gonna be a massive breakdown of you know these these power structures and hopefully, you know, hopefully hopefully an elimination of the state which means that well i think the united states is bankrupt and um is going to continue to be insolvent which is pretty cool because i'd like to get my hands on an f-15 someday um but you know also thinking about it like you know in the way technology you know has the potential to move us it would also be interesting to see what's in the vatican archives yeah Probably some hidden gems of archaeological history there. Yeah, yeah, that that stuff blows my mind. Um, just the the rumors about what's in there, what could potentially. Yeah, yeah, I don't think they're gonna let that one go. <laughs> that's uh, that'd be a weapon that the world would use to kill them, if anything. I mean, then again, they like through through every kind of evil action, somehow they still survived, but. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be... It's going to be interesting to see how that... I think this is one of the most exciting times to be alive right now as we live in a time of extreme upheaval and change. Man, it's like every every new generation is, is the best time to be alive. It's like, you know, I don't know what comes after next, but, but next is... <laughs> what comes next is the best time or the most exciting time to be alive or whatever, right? It just goes faster and faster as information travels faster and faster. Um, yeah, interesting times. I wonder about it. You know, I think about how many years I have left in my life. Maybe I'll live to see 90 years old. Maybe I have 60 more years of life. And it's, it's like, it's starting to seem really likely that in my lifetime, I, you know, if I live to be 90, I will see the dissolution or at least the if nothing else, the restructuring of the United States of America. And that's, that's incredible to me. Like, I don't know. I really, really don't see 
maybe that's like a, another topic that we've just stumbled on is this like civil war or whatever that people think is coming. I don't think people in this country know what a civil war is because what we call the civil war in America was actually the Confederate Revolution. A civil war is two different factions fighting over control of the same territory or state, uh, but a revolution is, uh, is a breakaway, right? So like the American Revolution, you, by the same token, you call the, the Confederate Revolution a civil war, you would call the American Revolution the British Civil War. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so I don't think like there's going to be some hot conflict. I think that it's what it's going to do is like, you know, the in the Confederate Revolution, it started with the nullification crisis, crisis, <laughs> um, where like the, the Dixie states would be like, nah, we're not going to follow that federal law. And we're already seeing that now. It's incredible. And again, like the more it grows, the more the states put teeth, like real teeth, like we talked about in the beginning of this onto their nullification of federal legislation, like, like you know, Second Amendment sanctuaries or whatever, the more that uh, that, that nullification would, would lead to something. The thing is, in the Civil War, there was, you know, I, I'm, I'm calling it that now, the Confederate Revolution. Um, there was a stomach to say, no, we are going to keep this country together. It doesn't matter that this country was born in revolution and it was literally born from us breaking apart from somebody we didn't want to deal with. And we put it in the founding document that you have a right to break away from whoever you don't like ruling over you. No, we are going to. So, you know, Lincoln demanded the blood of, of, uh, of young men all over the place and of, uh, in his own country and the, and the Confederate States. Uh, to to make sure that he would maintain rule over the entire territory. I don't think that there, there's that appetite now. There is just like people are soft and, and maybe people being soft in general is what has led us to this point of decadence uh, and cultural rot that is, uh, that is kind of like reverting us back to this Hegelian thinking where the common man just wants to be fed and and watered and play video games all day and, and live a life like that under these great men that rule over them. I think, I mean, that, that's what's brought us here, but by the same token, like everything's a double-edged sword. Everything can work both ways. And that means that people are too soft to put up with a hot, bloody conflict about it now. And Californians are just as likely to be like, let the Texans leave. Um, then the Texans are to say, we want out. Um, and I use those because those are the, like the two best examples of, of states that would like to succeed. And, and me, I'm a proud Oklahoman. I don't identify, you know, like I don't care about citizenship anywhere, but culturally I am definitely an Oklahoman. And Texas is our sister state and I want like nothing more to see them succeed uh, in the political arena anyway. Um, but if Texas leaves, like if it comes to that point, California is not going to be like, oh no, we're going to raise some soldiers and go march into Texas. Forget about it. Like it's just like when you read the cultural moment, it's not going to happen. There's not, it's just going to, there's going to be this nullification and nobody cares to do anything about it. So interestingly enough, if you get this nullification more and more over a variety of issues, then we will fall back into something like the Articles of Confederation, where the federal government is just some like afterthought of the legislative, you know, 
like states or conditions that the individual states want to have. Uh, and there'll be this like constitution, but it will become like relegated to like, if the states want to follow it. Because I don't think there's, you know, there's not any like, and they're not going to like split off into different countries either because, well, well, whatever. I, I'm going into a territory I, I really don't know anything about. I'm, I'm starting to speculate, but I, I think that's how it's going to go. I think it's, it's just going to be a nullification crisis, but instead of fighting a bloody war about it and making sure that it stays together under the same rulership, uh, I think everybody will just be like, okay. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, I definitely think that we're in the midst of, uh, yeah, civil war right now in like a, a massive conflict um culturally and it's kind of crazy uh for sure it's so so i guess like you know i'm i'm curious about your like point of view are you saying like just like um a culture war in general or do you think do you expect it to be it to come to some like uh official or institutional bloody head or do you think it's just you know sporadic violence here and there between people of different cultures yeah i mean i don't know i think one of the interesting things is it's so different everywhere in this country and so like portland oregon right now i've spent some i was born out there spent some time out there and it's like an active you know bloody conflict right now where you have two factions shooting at each other in the streets and throwing bombs at each other um or maybe even more factions i mean you've got the state you know and their jackboots you've got antifa and you have proud boys and you probably have a mix of people thrown in there too and so that's like one segment um and then there's you know minneapolis where you actually have um you know, this isn't covered a lot, but you have an actual like demilitarized or, or autonomous zone that's still in existence, uh, kind of similar to what was going on in Seattle. And it's kind of um, a nightmare. And then you've got all the states doing their various things with nullification. It's, it's all over the place and it's kind of chaotic. And I think it's definitely a conflict. That's for sure. You know, yeah. I think the chaos is good though, because it makes it, much more difficult to organize anything um i don't know if it's good because i don't like to see people hurt but um it's definitely useful i guess you might say to some ends um it's uh kind of like one of the points that i liked because like to me personally the motivation for the the dagny dagger even though there's, you know, a lot of motivation you can find there, but primarily for me, it's that it's equality under the law. And it's that like government agents are allowed to have this technology that the commons aren't. And that's a uh, really offensive. I find it. Um, and I guess like part of my, like, I, I like to say like, look, you can have, you can have your firearms freedom, like to conservatives, right? These silly traditionalists. You can have your firearms freedoms, or you can pump up police with special privileges. You cannot have both. And I think people are starting to get that. And it's really interesting because my family is, is very much cut of this conservative cloth. And uh, they're all very worried about what I do. You know, my parents, you know, like, oh, 
you're getting into a confrontational space. You know, they're, they're very timid. Um, but uh, I do like, there are people that work on this project, my business partner, um, our intern who you, you talked to, uh, who tell their parents or their family or their friends who are, you know, typically, I guess we would consider them more left-wing uh, or more relating to the Democrat faction of things. And like distrust and dislike for law enforcement has gotten to such a point, whereas the normal gun control side is like, huh, I could be friendly to this because it's against police privilege. And at the same time, conservatives are finding themselves in this jam where am I supposed to support this or am I supposed to not? And they're very concerned about what they're supposed to react, you know, not what they actually believe. They have no belief in the matter. They're just like concerned with like, does my faction like this because it's gun freedoms or is it dislike it because the police don't like it? Um, and I really like that. And I don't, I think that's a new environment. I don't think that that could have been activated. And I don't think this project would have been provocative in the minds of, um, political thinkers the way that it is even just like what in 2015 2016 something like that like i i think this is like a very new thing like you're saying it's a the conflict does provide like new points of conversation i mean i don't really believe the conversation is effective which is you know the point of like why we're doing this instead of just talking about it but there is something i mean conversation is uh Conversation, I guess, is important. It's just powerless without like the reality right in front of you. So, yeah, yeah, yeah the conservatives. Um, I think January sixth was a very big uh, uh, convergence point for them and their thinking, for sure. Yeah, it seems like it started a little bit before then, like weeks before then. But that's that seems to be like. Uh, where it came to a head yeah yeah it's yeah. Gonna, i think it's going to get really it, or continue to be very interesting and i mean the school board one is another one that i think is huge for conservatives to see now being labeled domestic terrorists uh that's that's <laughs> that's definitely it's it's hard to get um, supportive of law enforcement after something like that, for sure. Yeah. It's like, you know, the, the government will label these people that are definitely not anarchists, like definitely fans of the government. They will label them anti-government, but like they weren't anti-government before you became anti-populist. So <laughs> I don't know what you're complaining about. Like you, you did this. Um, it is, it is interesting. It is interesting. And, I, and I, I find it fascinating because like you have these tepid conservatives that are like, they don't like the current administration. And that's about like the extent of their dislike for the government. Whereas I'm an anarchist who has made it my professional occupation to undermine and obsolete the regulations that they make and they don't come after me. And uh, I don't know, like that in itself is telling because like you, I mean, you know that they're insincere, obviously they're insincere in calling these people anti-government. Um, 
Oh yeah, like I did an interview with the Huffington Post one time and I kept a record of it because like I knew they were gonna spin what I said and they were gonna lie about it. And one of the things I said, like I talked about how I wanted like the three percenters and the Oath Keepers to have access to armor penetrating ammunition. And they said I like, wanted to arm anti-government militias. Like, dude, like the three percenters and the Oath Keepers are like born out of like military and police veterans. Like you can't get, like they, they're, they are agents of the state. They might not like the current, you know, government or whatever, but like, it's hardly anti-government, you know? Um, but that these people are being labeled anti-government, I guess, like just says, speaks to the fact that they're still viewing this in terms of, you know, this dichotomy. It's, they still view it as the institutional left versus the institutional right. Like they're not concerned about us. And again, like, I think that's a powerful tool that we need to remember because it means that we're flying under the radar still. And, that, and that's a good thing because the, 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 the less friction we have as we do this work, the, the you know, more efficient we can be undermining them. And hopefully by the time they realize it, it'll be too late, at least to a certain degree. Yeah. Yeah. No, the conservatives are uh, like a smoke screen for us right now. Yeah, I think it's the same goes for shit coins too, because a lot of these people um, just think that we're out there trying to do fancy money laundering schemes and print our own money. And that's a that's a really good point. That's a good point because I see I have seen altcoins as being really detrimental to the cryptocurrency space. All this like like I talked about with the podcast is just like a bunch of everybody's got their own podcast. They're all competing with each other. And that's preventing like one good one from kind of rising. Uh, and I feel that have felt the same about altcoins. Just like, stop it. You're just taking, you're just like killing the, well, yeah, you're diluting the, the market demand and interest so that it takes longer to develop Bitcoin, to develop lightning networks and, and all of that stuff. But that's a really good point that you have. It's just like, it's taking, they're taking the political heat and they're making the, and, and like it, it being traded on the futures market, like Bitcoin on the futures market, like that's a bad thing for Bitcoin because people are treating it like a typical, like stock investment rather than a currency. I view those sort of bad things, but you do make a very good point that like that keeps the regulators being like, oh, okay, it's just another, it's just another market scam. We know those. We like those. That's that's good with us. It's just another, just another way to play the market. That's our friend. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I appreciate the perspective. It's a good one. Yeah, that one came from. Well, well, first of all, it's helpful that we have a bunch of geriatrics in in the seats of power right now that can't figure out anything. They're like, "What's this dog coin?" We need to make sure we tax these guys on their dog coin. Um, but yeah, that ca- that idea came out from the block wars because or block size wars book um, because there was this massive battle to change the Bitcoin protocol, which would had had uh, a certain faction gotten their way, it would have uh, made Bitcoin a lot more centralized um, and more di- less distributed. And some people got super frustrated and ended up leaving and going over to Ethereum to go try their stupid ideas. Um, 
which it kind of pulled a bunch of people out of um, trying to, you know, implement their stupid ideas on Bitcoin. Yeah. And so I think the altcoins serve, it, it's kind of like fly tape, you know, where all these people just like, you know, go and stick on it and, um, and it kind of removes the nuisance to a certain degree um, so that we can do, you know, what's actually meaningful and, and valuable and actually changing, changing things. And it's, it's interesting to like, look at the different perspectives out there of like people that tend to be in Bitcoin, understand the economic side of things and how important that is. Um, as well as like, you know, the basic technical, um, you know, importance of like decentralization and security. Um, and a lot of altcoiners are just out there trying to chase money um and yeah yeah so i mean they are scams <laughs> the the vast majority are scams uh as my business partner michael would say they're they are invented to con people out of their bitcoin <laughs> mm -hmm. that's that's how it goes yeah and we all know conservatives are shit coiners too because they don't, yeah. Because they don't, they don't get the point of Bitcoin. They think it is just a, oh, it's a market investment. I don't understand it, but I can make money on it. But I don't. I want to get in at the ground level. I don't want to get in now. Bitcoin's already too big. I want to be in the next Bitcoin. Like there's going to be a next Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, it's... and look, I, 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 I will say, I will say, I'm friendly to alternatives that have a point. Mm -hmm. So like, I understand the the smart contract stuff that like Ethereum is good for. I would love for that to work itself into our society. Um, Monero, the black market runs on Monero now and the black market's a free market. And how can you, like, I'm, I, what better praise of a product is the, that the free market runs on this currency because, you know, because of its, it's uh, it basically does a coin join like every transaction. So it has its place, but uh, no, I mean, so that that's not to say like i i'm i i want to like condemn everything that's not bitcoin but like we we know the point we know the point of everything else we know the point of ripple and dogecoin and like it, yeah 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 when it, when i say conservatives are shit coiners it's like this idea of like promoting this idea of freedom but in in forcing and upholding the institutions that attack freedom and it's kind of like the similar ideas like a shit coiner of like we're going to sell it like the ethereum people we're going to celebrate decentralization with a centralized protocol um so yeah it's the i mean to to, to be honest like unfortunately i don't have your level of knowledge on bitcoin no. um I, I i try to like i said i try to be holistic in everything and i understand the basics of, of bitcoin i understand bitcoin to like a working level Mm -hmm. but I am not as deep in it as you are, uh, which is part of why I do so well with my business partner who is really deep into it and understands all of that. But uh, um, I guess Bitcoin hasn't been a critical, enough, a critical enough aspect of our business operation for me to, to dive into it enough, to spend the time on it enough to understand it at that level. So I guess I don't, I don't know what you're talking about as far as like, ethereum being more centralized you can tell me if you want like I'd, I'd love to hear yeah so it's uh 
protocol that has a very small dev team that controls the entire aspect of the protocol. Um, so, like, for example, they changed the the monetary supply issuance uh, pretty recently uh, without having to go through this giant process of going through thousands and thousands and thousands of nodes to get approval to create this change, mm-hmm. as well as all the discussion around it. Um, so that's problematic, um, as we know from central banking. It's a very similar concept. And then, uh, you know, the actual protocol standpoint, um, they make it, a, because of the way the protocol operates, it's very difficult and expensive to run a node, uh, which, you know, the nodes will control the network essentially yes um and you know they they say they run nodes but they essentially run the majority of people out there will run a prune node um that points to you know one of the central nodes um which you know they're so expensive and uh difficult and to run they have to run on a wet like amazon web service pretty much and so it's a major security issue of like your entire network is dependent. So it'd be a lot easier for a central power to shut down Ethereum than it would be to shut down Bitcoin. Yeah. Or core. It seems like, yeah, it seems like it's democratized enough that nobody would gain, nobody inside of the Ethereum world would gain power, but not sufficiently. Yeah. But like bad security from threats from the outside. From what you're saying, I don't know. I mean, it already is like, the there are people like Vitalik, for example, um, essentially has entire control over the network and a small group of his, you know, court co-developers. Um, so it's already at that point where it was um, never really was a decentralized pro, pro blah, protocol or project. I see. Yeah. It seems like I, I've heard that like a lot of those guys that work on altcoins do so in it like start on it with the intentionality that what they prove out in that altcoin will be incorporated into bitcoin at some point and i know like vitalik was at least in like 2014 he was uh he cared enough about bitcoin that he was part of like that dark wallet uh work with amir taki um I don't know. I guess I, I, I'm trying to, I'm speaking where I, I don't actually know much, but like, it seems like even a lot of the core developers of these things believe in Bitcoin in addition to, or like even over what they're actually working on. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to this idea, like kind of what we were talking about earlier is just centralized authority corrupts and like the, the power to print money, which, you know, is offered in these altcoins. So like Ethereum had a 70% pre-mine, meaning that Metallic and his friends got 70% of the, the coins. And that's that's a pretty standard operating practice for the altcoins um, is the founders get this giant uh, reward or, you know, amount of the initial coins. It's like, I mean, you could put the most pure, like for example, like we could put Ron Paul as the... Uh, the chairman of the federal reserve you know and who knows um he might do okay but uh yeah well he shut it down so i mean i guess that's probably <laughs> yeah I got, 
I guess he's too pure. He's too pure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I always think about these kinds of things and how Ron Paul is always the exception because he's like uniquely principled. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I see your point though. I, I see your point. It's a good point. Um, and again, like, I guess like we come back to this issue of like, you can seek the prophet or you can try to change the world. So pick one. I'm not saying don't take care of your family or whatever, like live in a cardboard box, but you know, like at some point you can, you only have so many resources and you can spend those resources getting money or you can spend those resources changing the world. So that again, though, I mean, I guess they're not mutually exclusive because Satoshi Nakamoto, if it's one person is, and if he still has access to those coins, it's very close to being the richest man in the world. And uh, in a couple of decades, I can only imagine that he will eclipse the share of the wor- world's wealth that of like, or how do I say this? He will be like far and away the wealthiest person as, as in terms of like percentage of the world's wealth than anyone to ever live. Mm-hmm. So, but, but what did he do? He opened up to people to mine it just the same as he did. I mean, there was no, there was no, oh, I'm going to take this from the, the outstart. He made something superior and it paid off anyway. If you make a superior product, you're going to be fine. Yep. You don't have to rely on silver-tongued marketing and manipulation and salesmanship and political prowess and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. You don't, you don't have to hire girls to attract the simps to your your company oh yeah anytime the company does that i'm like okay you got a crap product like your your business ain't for me this is what i want this is i get sick of this too you know dylan the reloading company no okay so behind me it's covered up right now but this is my this is my reloading machine my my hand loading machine right so that's how i make am the company that makes this is in scottsdale uh, and this is literally their catalog. And every month they've got, we call it, my wife and I be like, oh, I see the monthly porn came in the mail today, right? It's like, it's just, it's stupid. So I keep that around because it's their catalog, but it's just like, come on guys, like really, you, you don't, your product isn't good enough that you can just talk about your product. Does, does it come in a little black wrapped bag too? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's, it's not, not, not quite um, lewd enough for that but uh yeah yeah i have this this hope and dream that the way that company marketing is going to move in the future is it's going to be much more reputational based and uh, i think this is what's you know i'm hoping will happen the bitcoin uh meetup scene and other you know decentralized movements that happen like that of individuals of like if you're a company of integrity if you're yeah um you can just plug into this network and instantly have a user base. That's one thing I keep looking forward to that. I think people are just so new to this kind of thing being possible that they overlook it or they devalue it. But like all this access to information and decentralization and, and like how everybody can have a platform now, a big advantage or like something that's empowered that people seem to overlook is that like, 
you know, if you go to buy a vacuum cleaner and you want to buy the best vacuum cleaner, people read like consumer reports, you know, like that, that magazine, they'll tell you like, oh, like our, our testers, they, they put all of these different brands to the test and they wrote, they write a review on them and which one is better for what. And, oh, this one's garbage. This one's great for the value. This one's just like the primo product, you know, that needs to happen for every industry. Like that, that holds, you know, every time consumer reports comes out one day, it's like vacuum cleaners. The next day it's cars or like, you know, not even just cars. It'd be like compact sedans. And uh, the next issue it's, um, it's like what, like computer tablets or, you know, something like that. But like now that it needs to be there for everything. And one thing I was a little bit disappointed about in the, in the printed gun space is uh, Deterrence Dispensed rebranded themselves as Gatalog, as in the, ga the catalog of printed guns. And it's kind of like unfortunate. I mean, that's just a rebranding that they have. But like the idea that that evokes in me is this idea that like, you know, there are all these people making printed gun designs, Deterrence Dispensed and, and Aussie, which is kind of like their rival. And Aussie's got some problems, but they have put out some, some fun functional guns. And there's uh, Jeff Rodriguez making making his stuff and it's from everywhere. And somebody needs to compile this like database of like, if you're in this country and these regulations are affecting you, here's the gun for you. If you need a role for like close quarters combat, here's it like this, you know what I'm saying? Like it needs to be like the searchable database with all these parameters so you can find, uh, you know, so you don't have to look in these different places or whatever. Um, and the same thing for like what you're talking about, like some Bitcoin companies in the Bitcoin space have good reputations, some have bad, and there needs to be some organization to put all these in, in, into context so that when I'm trying to make my decisions, I'd be like, well, Samurai and Wasabi are competitors and, and Samurai does this better, Wasabi does that better. Um, these are what the two companies like, which wallet are you going to use, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I, yeah, I want to see that across the board. There's no reason why this decentralization can't lead to more reputational-based uh, market decisions, I guess. And, and look, in the, the Crypto Anarchist Manifesto even talks about that, how everything will be reputation-based. So yeah, it excites me also, obviously. Yeah, no, it's definitely my hope. I mean, the, the thing that's really exciting about a reputational-based uh, um society or you know market is that people's like scammery and dishonesty actually has implications like somebody like brian armstrong at coinbase wouldn't be able to you know continue on or you know all of these you know that's how they you know that that uh jay stark the creator of fgc9 is dead mm -hmm. you know how they got him i saw that they had to do with like eBay and Coinbase. Um, where where did you find that information? I was told by uh, AG Leaks, and then uh, and that that's the day that we found out that he died, and uh, and then later it was confirmed by the German, I don't know what to call it, newspaper, news magazine, news website, whatever news organization that first broke the story. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's a real thing and it really matters. So, uh, don't use Coinbase. And for the life of me, as somebody who's like really not into computers and, uh, 
and not not willing to like geek out about Bitcoin, it is extremely frustrating for me that acquiring Bitcoin, besides it being given to you in a transaction via or you know like donation or an exchange, like a like like we do on our, our website, is very difficult. And it's like if you don't, I mean, Coinbase is already hard enough to use. And then you try to use BISC and it's like, oh, geez, like it's a whole other. So, I mean, I guess like the thing to be learned is immediately, yeah, don't use Coinbase, but that's kind of obvious. And we've all known that forever, but seriously don't use Coinbase. And then for the people who really are, you know, Bitcoin geeks, just like I am a firearms technology geek, this is your task. Make it available make it easy like i know that that you guys you experts love to geek out about about all this stuff and go really deep into the code and stuff but like you need to make accessible tools for everybody to use because it doesn't matter who dies because they use coinbase people in my position have a really hard time doing you know using something else uh, and I and I won't use Coinbase anymore. This is this is my wake up call. I will admit that I was a bad boy and I was using it before, but but no more. Make some tools for us. Like make it easy. It is still really hard to navigate without a very deep knowledge technically of what's going on, you know, under the hood. So uh, I guess like as I as I try to make firearms tools available to people, that's what I charge the Bitcoin side of things with is. Make it easy to use. Make it so that my uncle doesn't have to use Coinbase. You know, my my FUD uncle or well, you know, whatever. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely not a privacy expert, and it's something that's like the rabbit hole that I'm going down currently. But this is something like you know another vision I have for the meetup scene and why I want to see a meetup in every you know city in Arizona is because I I want to see these networks start to be built out like you know we we all have like the different things that we specialize in um you know i kind of want to be good at everything but that's not really realistic or possible and i'm reminded that of like on a daily basis of like uh, try and go do something and my head starts spinning um but there's going to be somebody else that is and i feel like um you know one of the challenges right now from like an exchange standpoint is all of the exchanges are eventually going to be deputized by the state, you know, and all the data that they're collecting, all the transactions they're collecting are susceptible to seizure. Um, And, you know, they could be like Coinbase and just be flat out spooks, like working for the state, or they could get, you know, subpoenaed and, you know, have a gun put to their head to give over the, information i think ultimately like the resiliency comes from you know building out a network of like you know if there's where we're at right now home mining is you know pretty economical and you know even you know in times that it's not that could replace your dca on a uh um exchange and now you have no kyc um what are the energy costs up in Flagstaff? Uh, definitely more expensive than in other parts of Flagstaff, other parts of Arizona. But uh, I, I don't actually, I don't know. Um, frankly, that's kind of my wife's, uh, 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 she, she pays our, our, our bills. 
She's the one that who handles all of the financial side of things. Yeah. Well, I handle the business financial side of things, I guess, but you know what I'm saying. But yeah, that's, that's, I think the, the ease of like, it makes the ease of entry because I think like this problem, there's always going to be the person that's just not interested in these, these tools from like a practical standpoint, the the type of person that says privacy is important because I have nothing to hide. And those aren't the people that I think, you know, really, really matter um, in these circumstances uh, because they're not the ones trying to change the world or doing anything meaningful for the most part, um, typically. Uh, and I think when we have these networks built out um, in these, you know, different economies uh, on a local basis, it, it's doing multiple things where, I mean, I, I just think where we're going, it's, it's going to get so bad. Like it's going to be difficult to have food um, or certain types of food. There's going to be just these insane regulations. We're already seeing, um, limitations on our travel uh, and I, I think we need to build resilient networks around it so that's that's my solution to it personally of like you know build relationships with the miners to source you know non-kyc bitcoin without having to go through an exchange um, and i think that's you know a great solution then as well as just like you know local i, I mean i think if we build out and make Bitcoin interesting uh, to people locally. Like if local farmers, they're getting totally screwed by the state right now. Um, they're going to get even more screwed going forward in the future. And it's like, if they had take on this insurgent mindset of like, we're going to use Bitcoin, you can't censor or confiscate it. And now we have all this, um, you know, income that's, you know, potentially non-reportable, um, or difficult to prove that, you know, is ours and we do it properly. That's, that's so empowering. So yeah, that, that's my philosophy at least. Yeah. 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 No, I, I agree. I had to say in the, in the back of my mind, I, I've been thinking about something and, and like, here's, here's like the future is teeming with stories that wait to start. Uh, and uh, a really good concept for such an insurgent operation. I'm not sure how much profit it would make. Um, but for instance, some of the trouble with BISC is that uh, it's hard, you know, it, it's like entirely, it, it's anonymous. And so there are, you know, there's single individuals only wanting to take like, you know, you, you have to select between different payment methods, right? Like this person's willing to take this payment method, this person's willing to take that one. Frequently, it is very difficult to find the payment method that you want to use uh, along with the kind of like the um, the like order of magnitude of coin that you want to buy. So like if I use Zelle, I can buy $5,000 or I can buy $100,000. Uh, but if I want to buy $30,000, um, no options, right? So... For instance, one of these insurgent enterprises um, is like, say you have a bunch of money, say you have, say you have only a couple hundred thousand dollars, which for a lot of people in the Bitcoin space, they got it. Uh, or, you know, get, get some other people together if you don't, um, investors, you might say, they care about this stuff. 
and like just just you know you can exchange with with coinbase all you want because you're just this this cover organization uh and then just like make offers for buying and selling on on uh on bisc like always available in for every payment method right so that ensures that somebody can always use bisc no matter how much the bitcoin they want to buy or sell and how much uh or in what payment method they want to use i mean something that's just like that simple like it doesn't require like hardly any operating costs i mean i'm sure that you could write bots and software to, to take care of this but like Imagine if you went to BISC every time, decentralized exchange, you, you, your one-stop shop to get Bitcoin, and you had you always had options for every payment method for, you know, hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, you know, two thousand, five thousand, ten thousand, you know, what you had like the set quantity. Like these these quality, quantities of purchase are always available to you. Um, you know, like like these so much of the time like these tools are there and then there's just like the access isn't uh but like you know that's just an example i'm not you know that's i, I would love to see that happen but i i don't expect anybody to do it so something like that is just like a an easy way to to make bitcoin more available or at least like you know the the private in uh insurgent ends of bitcoin more available so. yeah there yeah. you go. It's going to be interesting to see how these um, things play out. And I think it's definitely going to take some time. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty stoked. You know, I'm just stoked on what I'm seeing with um, people in my local community and, and the mindset that they have and the interest that they have. It's, I think we're trending in the right direction. I think more like localized organization that we get uh, the better to leading towards and fixing these problems. Um, because I think, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. That's my, yeah. So. I, I can't wait for, for, for lightning network too. That, that'll, that'll fix a lot. Cause it's inherently, it's, what inherently private and it can it basically it can in, in effect like launder your coins somewhat and it makes it so that it makes financial sense with the fees and everything to like go to the convenience store and buy a coke with bitcoin yeah i i look forward to that that's that's the big one that i'm like ooh, this is gonna this is gonna change things yeah we gotta get alice arms set up with lightning on your btc pay yeah well so our we do we are on btc pay it it has problems from time to time. Um, I don't know why. Again, like I'm, I'm not that that guy. Uh, we run a node, or my business partner that's in, in Houston. The node is is uh, is with him. Um, so if there's a problem, he can probably go fix it real fast. Maybe he just needs to like restart the, you know, reset the actual electronic box that it's on, but um so yeah i don't know maybe it's not working right now but we'll, we'll fix it but uh we use we use btc pay getting set up with lightning i would love to do that i would very very much like to do that that is beyond my knowledge and i don't know if michael knows how to do it either so if somebody wants to uh you know volunteer to help us then uh, we're all ears yeah maybe i'll make that one of my projects okay 
right. Well, cool. Well, I really did, appreciate did, Oh, go ahead. No, I just, I, you had said that you wanted to talk about some of our other projects. I didn't know if you wanted to, to do that or if you wanted to sign off here. Um, I probably got to start wrapping up. Um, I understand. I get you. Yeah. Where, where are some good places uh, people can follow you guys and your work? Um, so our, our, well, our website is, uh, you know, that's our, our self-made public face to the world. Um, atlasarms.org, not.com, but atlasarms.org. Uh, you can find out all about the, you know, we didn't get into the specifics of the Dagny Dagger project much. Uh, so if you want to know about that and, and that whole operation, uh, go to our website, um, our Twitter page, we can follow everything is, Atlas, it's Atlas underscore arms underscore org. Uh, that's our, our Twitter handle. I'm sure you could just search Atlas Arms and find us there. Me personally, I am Sword for Gideon. Sword for Gideon. Uh, that is my Twitter handle. Um, and that's about it. We used to have a Facebook page, but it doesn't see really any traffic. So I kind of don't really use that anymore. That, yeah, that's it. Awesome. Yeah, your target audience isn't on Facebook. No, no, they're not. <laughs> yeah, they're... yeah. Well, yeah, really appreciate you coming on. This is fun going the weeds on all sorts of topics. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. I, I really enjoyed breaking out of what is the Dagny Dagger? What's the legality? What's the, like that takes an entire hour just to talk about. So I was really happy to like break out and talk about some some stuff that I don't talk about all the time. It's, it's nice. Awesome. Big thank you to Austin for coming on and giving me so much of his time and, you know, walking me through after we stopped recording some of the stuff that they're working on over there. But yeah, really, really stoked on this conversation. And I think conversations like this are incredibly important right now as we move into kind of a dark dystopian future. And I think there's two sides of the coin of like, Yes, some of us are progressively becoming more enslaved to the state and on the contrast um, or the other side of the coin, a lot of us are becoming freer and taking steps to become more sovereign. You know, some of the things that he talked about are, you know, difficult. It's difficult to go and read up on everything on your industry and know all the regulations so that you're equipped to fight regulators or, you know, whoever comes at you. That's incredibly difficult and exhausting, uh, but that's how sovereignty works. You know, taking things into your own hand, using your Bitcoin right, uh, looking for ways to source food yourself, you know, things like this. It's not easy, and that's why a lot of people don't do it, but the trade-offs are worth it because you're not a slave uh, to these insane maniacs in positions of power. And yeah, I... I Super stoked on this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and thanks for watching.